Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. (music) Ambition and loyalty, what we want versus what we already have and should be grateful for. When there's conflict here, in some ways it's a tension between loyalty to others and loyalty to ourselves, or maybe loyalty to who we are now versus another possible future self. Have I overcomplicated my life out of impatience and ingratitude? Have I broken something precious beyond repair? Or on the other hand, am I missing out on the life I'm supposed to have? Sometimes I think a lot of the trouble comes from the misunderstanding that these have to be opposing forces at all. These kinds of questions and choices are at the heart of Meg Wolitzer's novels, of which there are many. She's the author of The Interestings and her newest wonderful book, The Female Persuasion. I'm excited to be talking to her about it today. Welcome to Think Again, Meg. Thank you. So your writing reminds me a little bit of Raymond Carver, not quite that minimalist, but it is somehow simultaneously very, very simple and very complex. And I'm wondering whether that's something that has emerged for you over time. It feels as if it feels as if the book just writes itself. I once heard somebody say that the book that writes itself will have to read itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an interesting comparison with Raymond Carver. I've never heard that comparison. I'll take it. I'll, I'll accept it. On the one hand, it, it seems to be simple snapshots of people's lives, but there are also like all of these moments of really kind of penetrating lucidity and just kind of off-the-cuff commentary on this or that element that that somehow go very deep. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I I think I do like to go into these human moments and be very free to sort of try to figure out what they are without being schematic about it, but just to sort of be it's got a kind of not really a free associative quality, but I think that you really need to be very very open when you're writing and then you become open to surprises. And often people say, "Oh, that's in terms of plot." I don't mean that. I just mean about sort of a kind of emotional map of a story or of a book or even of a scene. Like where is it going? Is there suddenly a sharp jolt that takes the characters back into some old wound? Um, and I think that's something that probably interests me without even sort of acknowledging it to myself. I seem to always kind of return to this when I talk to authors, but when you leave yourself open in that way, you're also somehow dismissing the anxiety that the thing won't get written, right? There's a trust or a faith that where you're going is is going to be somewhere. Did you always have that? or No, absolutely not. I mean, I think the more you do it, the more you have that sense, I've done it before, I can do it again. Um, You can almost... You know, you can almost take a kind of cognitive way of looking at it. Uh, how many to- how many novels have you written, and of those, how many have been published? And of the- you know, you can look right. at you can go go through it and say, I do this. I like some of them more than others. I feel, but I feel very protective of all of them, and they were all. Um, they were all a project. I, I love the notion of the novel as project, or even as the larger sense of a sort of set of novels as a project. I was a big fan of the uh, Edward St. Aubin, Patrick Melrose novels, which I, oh, I really recommend this so highly to you. I can, I'm shaking my head yeah, in, in, I, indicating that I don't know oh, you, them. Oh, they're incredible, okay. British author. Um, those books, it follows, they follow um, a character's life through from trauma and beyond, and everything kind of goes back to the heat of the sort of inciting incident without referring to it, almost rarely of referring to it, but it's there as a sort of path. So I think that as I have gotten uh, more novels under my belt, as it were, 
I trust that a little more. I trust that I know what interests me. So I follow that. I'm never sure quite what the right way to do this is, but I suppose we should do an overview of the female persuasion for listeners who haven't heard it. And I think we should also just allow ourselves spoilers and say to the audience that there are going to be spoilers. And if they don't want to hear them, they can go la 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 (laughs) for that moment, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we should make some sort of sound, you know, when a spoiler is coming up, but but I I would like to be able to talk about everything. Absolutely. Okay. It's a book about a few things, uh, female power, making meaning in your life, and also the person you might meet who sort of sets you on a path that you hadn't expected. Right. Also misogyny and uh, just idea of feminism certainly is a big part of the book. But it's really about the interplay between people trying to make meaning, trying to understand who has power, what does it even mean. Ambition is something you referred to, um, I see as part of it too. Plot-wise, that's a different answer. Mm-hmm. It's uh, about a young woman named Greer Kadetsky who is starting college in 2006, and she is groped in an ugly way. Not that there's a way to be groped in a not ugly way, I suppose, uh, at a frat party and is very upset by it. And this guy uh, does similar things around the campus, and he's given a slap on the wrist by the administration. And she's upset and doesn't know what to do. She's a person who has a kind of timidity about her. Her face gets really hot. And a famous feminist, Faith Frank, how's that for an alliterative name? Right. Famous feminist, and, and Faith Frank. And a meaning-charged name uh, meaning as well. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, comes to campus and basically changes Greer's path in life. And it goes from there. So for Greer, what sets her on the path that she follows in the book is this first encounter with with Faith Frank, who she's totally inspired by and kind of aspires to become. And there's this there's this thing you say in the book, which is, I think I have written it here. This is kind of about how you end up going in the direction that you want to go in. And you say, we burrow and we burrow, attempting a hidden path. We are canny in our burrowing, and I've written, though we never want to admit it, I don't know if I was paraphrasing you, but this this idea of sort of burrowing toward what you want. I'm a big believer in the unconscious, and I'm interested in, in it. And uh, I think that there are a lot of ways that we, we do things that seem like trial and error, but in fact, they've been processed in some way without fully wanting to acknowledge it to ourselves. And Greer, who I described as timid, uh, late in the book, her best friend Z really lets her have it over something that you can spoil or not spoil. But she basically says for someone timid, you went in and asked for what you wanted. You've basically done that throughout our friendship, throughout this book. There's quite a bit of that. And you could call it burrowing. You could call it a kind of you know, just sort of wanting to kind of go deeper into things. But in fact, there may be, in fact, a, a connection to ambition that sometimes women may not want to admit because of societal mm. uh, prejudice against the ambitious woman. But to go for something in a shy way might be a way to deflect from the fact that you really want it. But and I think that that may be the way sometimes people go. On the one hand, the characteristics like Z is sort of an outspoken, highly political, sometimes radical character, edgy, angular. Mm-hmm. And Faith is warm, but also extremely confident and poised and powerful in mm-hmm. her way. And then Greer is sort of sideways in, in this sense. And 
as a man, I can read these on the one hand as kind of reflections of ways of being a woman, but I can also read them as just personality types. Yes. I feel like I know those men that I am one of those men as yeah. well, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not anticipating t-shirts out there that say, are you a faith? Are you a grayer? <laughs> no, it's not. And it's nor, not nor a, do I mean to yeah, dismiss no, I know. any feminist no, intentions in the book. But I like, think that, no, but I, uh, that gets to the point about character, which is something I care about as much as anything in a book. I mean, I think that books which carry ideas and weighty ideas um, without the characters to remember and serve as vessels. I don't, I can't imagine writing a book that didn't do that. I care right. about the characters as much as the ideas. They must work together in some kind of gavotte uh, that works for me. I don't know this word, gavotte. Oh, a folk dance. Oh, okay, right. Yes, uh, you know, we're, we're like at a, like a country dance. Right. Like you have your move and you bow to me and I bow to you. Would you like to do that right now a little bit? Gavotte, <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I would like to do that, but the audience wouldn't see a That would be best. And you love words and you're playing with words all the time. And there are all these wonderful moments in your books where you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, at one point you riff on the word torso. Oh, yeah, torso, <laughs> torso, torso. <laughs> yeah. How torso dissolves it into is, nonsense. It is, well, like, say like, it. It's like torso, <laughs> torso. I do love words. I used to create uh, cryptic crossword puzzles, actually, with Jesse Green, the current uh, theater critic of The New York Times, oh, okay. co-theater co critic of The New York Times. We, we did that for a number of years in the old days. And I love, well, this is a side trip, but hear, sure. Yeah. Um, we played this game together, Giotto, also called Jumbled. You know this where you come up with a five-letter word and you and the other person comes up with a five-letter word and you try to guess the other person's word by saying other five-letter words and they tell you how many letters the words have in common. Oh, wow, okay. We both, weirdly, at the same time, based on nothing, it hadn't come up, came up at the same time with the word calyx. Oh, okay. And that was, we talk about calyx. Calyx is another word that if you say it like three times, you feel like you're on Mars. Like, what is this word? It's a strange word. Yeah. It's a beautiful and beautiful alien word. and in some ways Martian word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I feel that way a little bit about torso, less beautiful. But I think when you're young, when you're young, Fistula. bodies, fistula comes up. You know what a word that I really loved when I was young that I thought was very beautiful was carrion. I didn't know that was dead meat. I had no idea. And then, of course, it leads to a kind of joke about carrion luggage. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Which it is, really. Um I do love words, and I think that the kind of looking at the word and having it kind of lose its meaning in the book, it has to do with sort of with sex and a sort of introduction to sex, the torso, the body, yeah. the weirdness of it, the strangeness of the body and the strangeness of language. Something you say about sex in this book that is in incredibly interesting is that you say that in sex you can basically do I mean, that you're in an, a, a situation where you can rearrange each other's That's bodies, right, kind right. of, and that both people, when it's good and consensual, are playing you're with power to do, in that yeah, way. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Once I, I spoke to a book group at the beginning of writing this book, and I sort of asked them, you know, if they were interested in power and female power, mm. and they all like, yes, yes, yes. And one of them said that to her, power meant moving resources around. And that was interesting because I wouldn't think of it that way huh. myself. But um, maybe this is an offshoot of that moving. Right. You're allowed to play with another person's body. You're yeah. entitled. There's a power to that. It's like an ownership of it that doesn't threaten, that's not aggressive. Power comes up in all different kinds of ways here. And like going back to something that you were saying earlier, Greer 
comes at power sideways, perhaps, or sort of burrows towards it in a way, whereas Z is this much more like overt, face forward, go get what you want kind of person. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but within feminist discourse, there is pressure, I would think, and or encouragement for women maybe to accept their own power in a more overt way, like more in the direction of Z, maybe a critique that comes up of the Shire more roundabout mm -hmm. approach. And yet Greer seems to, aside from doing something very shitty to her friend at some point, she's finding her way as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the difference between sort of trying to make a life of meaning based on reading a book about activism, say, or going by what your own strengths and comforts are, you know, comfort level is. Right. And I think that that's something that real access to power probably comes out in a lot of people through a combination of those things, some sort of outside notion of it that you want to recreate, that you're modeling in some way. Mm. Uh, I mean, for instance, I re as a feminist, reading Our Bodies Ourselves, which was a, just a profound book and has remained a very important book worldwide, and it has been published in different countries with different accommodations to uh, you know different issues in, in different places. Reading it as a child, really becoming an adolescent, my sister and I kind of looking at this book, it was, it just had a kind of level of frankness that I wasn't used to, and it was so different from my shy little self. <laughs> and I was kind of, you know, it's like you file it away. and there, But you're not losing your own sense of self right. to then become someone you're not, because I don't think you could be, I don't think you could be effective that way. I mean, Faith Frank has right. these strengths in her and she uses them. So there are did, a lot of ways. Did it feel threatening at all when you were that age and reading a more overt and strident kind of direct, you know? Yes, probably. I, I was um, in a consciousness raising group. We kind of started one when I was like 14 in junior high school. And we wrote away to the National Organization for Women for a list of topics. And they sent us topics that were like orgasm and you, when in <laughs> fact what we wanted was like PSATs, don't stress out, you know, it was sort of like that. And it was so there wasn't a way in. And yet, and yet I so responded to this female wave. And I saw the ways that my mother, who became a novelist quite late for most people, she mm. published her first book at 44 and hadn't, you know, only had a couple of college classes, never really went to college, wasn't encouraged by her parents. I saw the way that she had been very affected by encouragement from other women. And it's no accident that her work rose up at that time. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about respecting character and, I don't know, understanding people and compassion and people basically having to find their way through their own, from, you know, within their own comfort. Yeah. Because I think, I think there are a lot of messages, even well-meaning messages that come out in society, you know, to boys and to girls about how you are supposed to be assert yourself more, project yourself more, brand yourself better, do this, do that, the other, which may or may not be useful, but you would need to find your own way into them. And sometimes they're voiced with a real, I think, 
aggressive, almost bullying disrespect to the individual. I think you have to tolerate for a long period of time the dissonance between who you are and what interests you when you're young. Like, I mean, I remember reading Susan Sontag when I was really young and like loving her. She was so brilliant and cool. And, and <laughs> I was just this, you know, I was wearing a huckapoo blouse. You probably don't even know what that is. I and don't. Or, What's yeah. a huckapoo blouse? Oh, it was this very ugly, but I loved them at the time, <laughs> this series of blouses in the 70s that had like these buttons that looked like candy. And the, the blouses had a lot of pink in them and all my friends had them and let's Super just say girly. very girly and Susan Sontag wouldn't be caught dead in mind. <laughs> but I'm kind of like modeling you know I'm in my life my little suburban life uh, like the character more like the character in the interestings really uh -huh. and I'm sort of thinking about things that interest me but they're so far away they're like on another planet but I'm getting sort of messages from another planet and I think that adulthood may be messages from another planet and you need to be patient because maybe one day you will go to that planet so talking about Greer's journey toward that other planet, and yeah, spoiler alert, she does something terrible to her friend Z. Well, in a sense, terrible. I want to talk about this. Like, So Z is the one that first tells her about Faith Frank when they're at college, and Z is the one who is overtly political and sort of in a sense feels entitled to being a part of the world that, that Faith Frank is a part of. And then it's Greer who meets her, it's Greer who gets her business card, it's Greer who gets a job with her later. And Z at that point in her life is like, I would like to work for Faith Frank too, can you give her this letter that I wrote? Now, when I first read that, I went, I wrote a note to myself, oh, because I thought, I actually thought that it was Z who had transgressed in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that people live in the murk more than they live in purity for the most part. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of aggressive thing you could say. I mean, I haven't, I don't know that I thought of it, used that word before, but right, here's her friend's big moment. And oh, by the way, can I come on Horn too? In on that, but yeah. she says it with such openness and sweetness because that's who she is. But it has a level of guileless, can you have guileless aggression? Not aggression, I actually want to take that back. I, it's a <laughs> surprising assertiveness at that moment when her friend is just excited um, and wanting to go somewhere. But because it's all been, they've been such good friends and she's been so supportive, Greer understands that she should not view it that way, but that she should take it and do it. But she starts to feel more and more depressed and her, the letter in her hand feels like she doesn't want it there. You know, in the context of Greer is emerging into herself and finding her strength and finding her place within Faith Frank's organization, bringing in her very, like, outgoing, very strong, very already there kind of friend, it is a threat in a it way to her It could eclipse her easily, journey. and she yeah. knows that. And also, I was interested in the fact that Greer is someone who has not been very well parented, I hate that word, but uh, right. her parents have been sort of absent. So there's the notion of Faith Frank as something of a sort of mother figure as well. Whether Faith Frank wants to be that or not is sort of not relevant. But she, you know, you want to please the good mother who only is sort of liking you and accepting you and sort of saying, Greer, come with me. Right. And now here's this interloper. And she's never viewed her friend as an interloper before. So it's disturbing. It's confusing. And I want to kind of just give a, a sort of variety of those feelings around that moment. I, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of the ethics of Faith Frank's position mm -hmm. as a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to sort of 
impugn or er erode it at the edges, but it seems to me like there is something a little ambivalent about this role that she plays with respect to these these women who she she doesn't really know and that in some sense it's like also about her. You think she's ambivalent toward these women in terms of uh, I, I don't, them? No, I don't um, feel she's ambivalent. No, but I feel oh, the narrative. I, I feel like her role oh. as being this kind of grand mentor figure that all of these women aspire to be and send letters to many years later, thank you, thank you, thank you that there's something ambivalent in that relationship, yes. which we definitely see in the way that it ends with Greer. Well, you know, I did something uh, in the very, very beginning of this book that I rarely do. I did something in the school of what uh, my husband and I jokingly call the little did she know school of writing, <laughs> right, right. right, where you sort of where you propel into the future and say, I, I refer to the unspeakable end of their relationship. Right. So the reader, in a, but, but I think in a novel, actually, in a long novel in particular, someone I know actually wrote me from uh, New Zealand the other day to ask me, he saw the end, a sort of extract from the book and asked about that line and asked about that technique in a sense. And right. It made me think about it because I think that the novel is a, such a can be a large container for a lot of things, and to keep a reader in some part of the brain remembering this is not just moving around exploring in a nonlinear way. There is a path toward the unspeakable end, and the reader files that away and, and maybe remembers that. So I decided that I could could do that here, and that it was fine to do that here. It didn't feel um, heavy handed good, to good. me. I'm, like I'm it was glad. like a little little drop of poison or Good. something. Yeah. But I think <laughs> that drop of poison speaks to what you're describing as the ambivalence because the thing about a relationship that is very imbalanced is, first of all, uh, going back to Freud ideas, um, transference, you know, the, the mm. concept of transference that Freud was so big on with the patient and the analyst that the the reason that the analyst needed to remain a kind of blank screen is so that the patient could um, project images onto that screen. Right. And Faith is someone who most people haven't really been to her apartment, and they don't really know, is she sleeping with someone? Uh, nobody's really met her kid. I mean, there's a sort of, you know, maybe her, her friends have, of course, but the people who work with her sort of enjoy the mystique of Faith Frank, and she probably enjoys it too, but of course she's a real person. I mean, it's sort of like the moment, the shattering moment in grade school when you run into your teacher in the supermarket, <laughs> and in her cart there's, I don't know, maxi pads or, or as, and frozen broccoli, and she's got this very ordinary life of a middle-aged woman who happens to be your brilliant teacher. Right. So, uh, the right, that there's not necessarily anything sinister in the fact that we play roles. No, but I think that they are roles, and I think that it's a little hampering sometimes to be the the admired mentor, because I think the mentor, it's all about, you know, the mentor doesn't have a lot of room to move, but in fact, everything is kind of about the protege, because the action, the direction of stuff, it's like, you know, the mentor says to the protege, to protege, oh, do you want to try this? Or here's a here's a number, call this. Or right. I was thinking of you the other day. It's not like it goes the other way. So what kind of a relationship really is that where there's a dreamy transference one way and a and a stream of help the other way? That's not like most relationships. The stream of sort of unrequited help is like a 
you know, I don't know, an idealized maternal relationship, yeah. as you yeah. said, but but the transference isn't necessarily no, there. And with I a feel that the, the parent child in can. a novel, the satisfying trajectory is to finally break that, which is why the reader knows that it will be broken to some degree. Because where can it go finally? Yeah. Um, you know, you could have a sort of nostalgia the you know the woman gets older there's no friction between the characters you watch her get older you visit her it's kind of like the sort of do you know the sad feeling like of going to visit your teacher the year after the grade and she's not that interested in you because she has her new ones right. but you're here i am and we used to go to the teachers and then it was diminishing returns because they were happy to see us but they had new ones and yeah. you accept the flow and the movement of time and i think with regard to mentors and protégés, time comes into play in a very big way. So now the spoiler to end all spoilers, I want to talk a little bit about the boyfriend, Corey. Mm -hmm. And so Greer's longtime boyfriend, Corey, has a little brother, Albie, and horrible, jarring. I literally gasped when I read this. He's run over uh, by the mother accidentally in the driveway and then Corey's whole life changes and I want to talk about that because so Corey's like at Princeton and he's on this ambitious track he's going to make an app with his friends he's saving up money he's like a consultant mm -hmm. in, in Philippines Manila, yeah, and, yeah. yeah and he decides instead to go home and take care of his mother and just basically that's what he does and from Greer's perspective this is and from kind of our perspective I think as the reader this is like oh my god what is what is this boy doing with his life early on in the book these two kids are referred to as twin rocket ships and it's a name of one of the sections of the book the idea that there's nothing that's going to impede them. They are going to be these superstars and have a kind of good life of meaning and live in Brooklyn and work doing good stuff. And that doesn't happen. And there was a compact that they made. And Greer feels, in a sense, that, you know, after a while, wait a minute, why isn't Corey returning to that rocket ship right. person that she's always known? Why Isn't that what they planned? But life, of course, isn't like that. And she doesn't know that yet. Corey almost radically, almost um, monkishly in a way, you know, he almost takes a vow in a sense of diligence or something. Yeah. I, I think that, that some of that is innate to his personality. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, some of it is related to class probably too, though. Um, you know, he comes from this working class background. Right. And nobody has people sort of working for them. His mother cleans houses. And I think in his family, the idea of bringing someone in is so, would be so wrong, would feel so wrong to him. And there's that respect for like work qua work. You know, he's cleaning houses um, to help support her. I felt that I got to know him really well through that passage, in fact, because he's going around people's houses and he's talking about the things you find in their houses, the dust and the tubes of things that you don't want to know what they are. But that work, you know, work is work and, and, it, and it has integrity to it. And um, yeah. that's something that he is sort of seeing. He felt a little bit of a fraud at Princeton because there was a lot of wealth around him. He didn't feel entirely comfortable. He doesn't feel entirely comfortable here, of course. He's given up so much, as you say. It was a shocking thing to have him do that, but it felt right. Also, the sacrifice that he's making is 
in a way, in honor of his brother. He spends a lot of time in his brother's room. He's going through his notebooks. He's taking care of the turtle, Slowy, yeah. that was that was <laughs> Albie's, which is like, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say my favorite name in the book, Slowy. Slowy is, is perfect. It's name. perfect. It's perfect. And then he, and then he makes this sort of abstract uh, video game called Soul Finder. Soul Finder, right. Where you're basically searching the whole world for the person you've lost. And in 99.9% of the cases, you can't find them. But I love the idea that there could be this video game that had almost like some of them had a kind of a Willy Wonka golden ticket. And then you would be able to, if you had sort of plugged in the right things, find this person who you've lost. I just, I want to play that it's really profound, you know, this idea that when you lose somebody, you, you just can't quite ever fully accept that they're gone. I understand it. I see see it on a biological level, see it on an animal level. But I don't understand how the sense of a person just disappears. Like, it's like, what? Like, why aren't you talking to me? There was that great anecdote about Houdini and his wife that they made a pact that whichever of them died, I may be getting this slightly wrong, but uh, whichever of them died, would do whatever they could to get in touch with the other person from Hmm. the afterlife. And he died, and she said she never got any sign, so she knew that death was final. If Houdini couldn't knock on on the ceiling, that was it. But there is that thing about knowing what their presence felt like and somehow being, you know, like repeatedly trying to get in touch with that. Right, like you can't get away from it. That's why we dream those dreams that are so unbearable, that are so delicious for a minute, and then you wake up confused because the dead person isn't there because you felt that thing about them. I mean, when I teach writing, which I do uh, sometimes, one of the things that I like to talk about is how characters can feel real and vivid more than, you know, on the page. And I think one of the things that I've said to classes is, you know, when you're at home and you suddenly want to talk to a friend and you pick up the phone and call them, but you didn't have anything in particular you needed to tell them and you don't need to hear anything from them. You wanted a very specific thing that you can't even necessarily articulate to yourself. You wanted that feeling of being with them. And that's a thing that we often don't pause to know what that is. And I think that when you lose the person, you're losing, it's like a very, very particular taste. It's so specific that you need a new name for it, like umami. You know, it's like so, it's so what it is. And and actually I, it's not, it's not just them. It's also that part of yourself yes, that resonates that, uniquely with And them. also like, sometimes even in a more grandiose way, yeah. how they loved you. Yeah. And I, you know, and it, which is not to put that down, but it, at all, because it's important. But it's not only how you loved them, but it's you've lost how they loved you. And it's a, it can be a shattering experience, of course. You know, as much as this book deals in ideas of, you know, feminism and, and kind of takes little glancing looks at, you know, issues around it and how faith is criticized for not being uh, inclusive enough. She comes She's from like third, second wave. Second wave feminist. feminist yeah. And- as much as it does that. I'm also so interested in ideas around grief and Corey becoming this person that he becomes is through is through the slow filtering of grief through himself. I, I assume that like many novelists, you're grabbing and sort of repurposing details from your life to some extent. How do you negotiate that? I mean, do you require your imagination to produce every character? I think that in the hierarchy of elements 
that I would put into a novel the, uh, on a detail level. Invention is my absolute favorite. So when I can invent whole cloth, I am most excited. Mm. That said, I believe that for me, the world of a novel is kind of a strange kingdom that is made up of things in the real world and things in my somehow just things that float through my brain pan like objects kind of floating by in a flood you know there's Mm -hmm. that sort of sense of it my son teases me that he said mom the reason you write novels the main reason you write novels is so you can make up the titles of things within it like the titles like the name of the the feminist magazine called bloomer uh faith writes a book called the female persuasion and then another one called the email persuasion um then you know just the names of bands whatever it is i love doing that that's absolutely true but uh I think that there's it's like a Venn diagram of the world and my world. In terms of my own world, I don't write autobiographically. The most autobiographical thing was that in the interestings, I too went to a summer camp in 1974 when I was a kid, just like the one in that book. But beyond that, and my closest friend who remains my closest friend to this day looked like the best friend in that Mm. book. But wasn't her, wasn't like her. Nothing else was real. Gotcha. But it's like, I consider it not, oh, these are details from my life or it's autobiographical. I consider that a catalyzing experience, a springboard. So I would say that I use springboards and the occasional detail that I've noticed, like we, but they tend to be a very micro detail. Like um, there's something in the interestings also about the way pencils look like collie dogs. dogs, Yeah. Yeah, You know, and that's something I noticed as a kid. It would just be the kind of thing that I would notice. And somebody said to me, you have a hyper, they wanted to write something about my hyper noticing or something in my fiction. It's like, I don't think of it as that. I think of it as how I see the world. I'm gonna rattle off just a couple of wonderful moments of hyper noticing from my little notes here, just so the listeners get a flavor for how you do this. And some of them are paraphrased, so you'll bear with me, but basically Greer, when she first arrives, her freshman year of college is almost quote unquote, curating her own unhappiness. You describe this body spray that all the men are wearing, which oh, yeah. I think is like Axe or whatever. But but it's it, you know it's called Stadium again, making up names. Um, half pine sap, half A one sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you talk about the turpentine smell in the art studio at college as a kind of sexual accelerant for the art students. Friends traveling in one group like children inside a camel costume. I thought that was so beautiful. Oh, and then this is from the interestings. Like after sex, they're lying in bed at an angle, like two people recovering in a Swiss oh, chalet, right. ski chalet hospital. <laughs> the funny thing about these these details <laughs> is that you could do this with a writer, and I'm sure it would work with all of them. You could like le- do like leave a blank, and they could fill in the sentence. Like they would know what it was. Right, they, you, right. know, you know all your imagery. You right. know it. It's just it. Yeah, it just kind of when it. You know, you have to be sparing you know, careful that you're not doing things for the sake of doing them and that you're not being sure. showy, but or like that's why overly clever or yeah, whatever, yeah, but I, it I never would, feels like that. Oh, I'm glad. Well, that's because, revi- thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I, if, if that's true, I'm so glad. And, and it's because of revision, which is really paramount. Revision allows you to see the things that you, you know, the kill your darlings notion yeah, is yeah, very, yeah, yeah. really happens during revision. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. 
It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think this is a good place for us to move on to the second part, where we go to the surprise clips uh, for the listeners, some of whom have heard this many times. Big Think has these vast archives of past video interviews. Uh, The production team has chosen a couple for us to take a look at and see where the conversation goes from there. Sure. This is Tali Charot, neuroscientist, and the video is called The Neuroscience of Why People Won't Budge on Their Beliefs. So most of us think that information is the best way to convince people of our truth. And in fact, it doesn't work that well. And we see that all the time, right? We see it where with climate change, where there's tons of data suggesting that climate change is man-made, but about 50% of the population doesn't believe it. Or with people arguing about things like how many people were in the, in the presidential inauguration. So we have facts, but people decide which facts they want to listen to, which facts they want to take and change their opinions, and which they want to disregard. And one of the reasons for this is when something doesn't confirm to what I already believe, what people tend to do is either disregard it or rationalize it away. Because information doesn't take into account what makes us human, which is our emotions, our desires, our motives, and our prior beliefs. So for example, in one study, my colleagues and I tried to see whether we could use science to change people's opinions about climate change. The first thing we did was ask people, do you believe in man-made climate change? Do you support the Paris Agreement? And based on their answers, we divided them into the strong believers and the weak believers. And then we gave them information. For some people, we said that scientists have reevaluated the data and now conclude that things are actually much worse than they thought before, that the temperature would rise by about 7 degrees to 10 degrees. For some people, we said the scientists have reevaluated the data and they now believe that actually the situation is not as bad as they thought. Um, it's much better and the rise in temperature would be quite small. And what we found is that people who did not believe in climate change, when they heard that the scientists are saying actually it's not that bad, um, they changed their beliefs even more in that direction. So they became more extremists in that direction. But when they heard that the scientists think it's much worse, they didn't nudge. And the people who already believe that climate change is man-made, when they heard that things are actually, scientists are saying, are much worse than they did before, they moved more in that direction. So they became more polarized. But when they heard that the scientists are saying it's not that bad, they didn't nudge much. So we gave people information, and as a result, it caused polarization. It didn't cause people to come together. So the question is, what's happening inside our brain that causes this? And in one study, my colleagues and I um, scanned brain activity of two people who were interacting. And what we found was when those two people agreed on a question that we gave them, the brain was really encoding what the other person was saying, the details that they gave. But when the two people disagreed, it looked metaphorically as if the brain was switching off and not encoding what the other person was saying. And as a result, when the two agreed, they became even more confident. But when they disagreed, there wasn't much of a change in their confidence in their own view. It's very interesting and not shocking, I guess, uh, because 
I'm thinking of it in terms of characters actually right now. And you reader, you get in trouble sometimes with readers who tell you, you know, why was that character so intransigent? Mm. I wanted to see change. And my instinct as a fiction writer is to have a kind of stubborn intransigence a lot throughout a book. And I think the notion of change isn't necessarily something you could even see, but it's more like a turn so that, uh. you know, uh, I to the point that I asked a psychiatrist friend do people ever really change in therapy? And she was sort of insulted by this idea that they didn't because, you know, otherwise she was wasting her life and, you know, she's quit and now she's a venture capitalist. No, I mean, uh, do they change in therapy? She said, of course, of course they do. But, and, and I'm sure that is true. But that means behavioral change, perhaps. I, you know, it could mean a lot of different things. But you are who you are in some very, very deep way. And it's like Trump capitalized on this by saying that thing about I could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot people and I'd, my fans, would, my supporters would still love me. Right. He's speaking to that, right? There's nothing that could be done if you love him to convince you to hate him. It would be a slow erosion of something maybe that had a personal effect on you. Like he promised your community that he would do something and he didn't do that. But I think that people are often very trapped in inside themselves. It's almost like, I, I feel like as a novelist, I have maybe one or maybe two or three arias to sing. And we mm -hmm. all have that, people who aren't writers too. And we sort of say versions of that. And sometimes there's a breakthrough where you can break past what she was describing. But it's interesting to me that commonality breeds a kind of acceleration of commonality mm. and that that makes uh, it just seems to make um, intuitive sense to me going back to something you were saying uh, a second earlier and maybe veering a little bit away from here this this idea of um intransigence you know like the so much of the messages that we are now getting and sort of um replicating in popular culture uh, seems to be about this longing for total transformation, yeah. you know, like the the music, -help it. yeah, or yeah, or Beyonce music or whatever. There's just this sense of like, I am now completely different. You know, I've abandoned what was holding me back, and now I can fly. You know, sort of thing. And in some ways, I think that does us that does a disservice to the way that real transformation actually happens because people. People do change, but as you said, they 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 change gradually. It, yeah, and it can be really profound. But in our culture, we need to see it. I like show me the money, show me the evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why. What was that book years ago where the secret? Right. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, like there sure, was a sure. secret, and you could get really rich, and it involved being around successful people. I don't even remember, but it was like this idea. You will suddenly no more be suddenly this schmo more. that you've always been. Right. I yeah. think once you accept your schmoness, you have two, you know, well, once you recognize your schmoness, you have two choices. <laughs> you can just be the the schmoiest schmo who ever lived and the best schmo. And I'm choosing to do that, to be the best schmo. Or you can refuse it. I there, are, there are maybe, I mean, depending on how you do middle. that, there may be consequences yeah. to, to attempting a radical schmoectomy. Yeah, a schmoectomy uh, is very expensive, first of all. Uh, there's been a high fatality mortality rate. Uh, but I think the truth is we, once we realize, and it, it's an adult idea, that this is it, like our lives are short. 
Yeah. This is it. Um, you know, I'm never going to lose that weight or, or I, my marriage is imperfect or, or I didn't become the job. I didn't get to the job I wanted to have or whatever it is. Um, there's a sadness. There's a melancholy attached to it. Sure. And we don't, we want to feel a sense of renewal. And why wouldn't we? I think, but I think renewal can take place, of course, in, in, a, in smaller ways. And that can be very gratifying, too. Also, something else in there, it's not just about how you can't change, but about the kind of excite, the neurological excitement that takes place in agreement. Mm, um, mm. I heard that, too. Right. And I think that there's something there that is powerful and useful to, to know. Um, because that's how ideas get made. That's how people work together. You know, they have to challenge each other ideas. I mean, I, I probably like great inventors who work together, challenge and make mistakes and one disagrees. But the idea of, you know, if you're in a conversation like with a new friend yeah. and you're both saying, yes, yes, yes. I love that episode too. Whatever you're saying, you can tell that all kinds of things are firing in a different way than a very hearty political debate where you are at different positions. Right. And that's the, que that's the thing. Like in this conversation about people being trapped in bubbles, you know, whether it's their own cognitive bubble or whether it's a cultural or political bubble, we should not throw out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that where that resonance happens, where that excitement and that opportunity for collaboration exists and where it exists, where it's coming out of that sense of resonance and sameness or whatever, we should do that, you know? And, and there's a tension now about the need also to find a way to talk across those differences. Especially in the moment in which we live right yeah. now, it's very, it's disturbing and upsetting to hear that you can't teach people the truth about things they really need to know. And yeah. that it's like, I feel very despondent hearing that um, from that perspective, like, wow, how can you get through to people about urgent truths if they don't know that? How can you make movement beyond gradual incremental movement when it's an emergency, the planet is at stake? We have to do reparenting, like John and Yoko. We have to do like <laughs> rebirthing or something like that to take people way, way back into a place where their their minds are plastic enough to <laughs> accept these new ideas and everyone has to believe in climate change. God. <laughs> <laughs> My mind is ec excited in agreement um, with that, that fact. Shall we do one more? Sure. Okay. And all right. So this one is Michelle Thaler and her title here is Astronomy Science Communication. And the video is called, How Success and Failure Coexist in Every Single One of Us. I have a slightly different career in the sciences in that I am a professionally trained scientist. I have a doctorate in astrophysics and I've done my own astrophysical research. But I decided to emphasize science communication and actually you know, go more into education and policy and, and trying to communicate science to the public. And the interesting thing to me is that that means that there are a lot of people that don't know me very well that have seen me on television that assume that I'm, an, I'm a brilliant scientist. You know, the reason this person is on television is she must be the best astronomer you know, of the day. And, and that's certainly not true at all. And then I have a lot of professional colleagues you know, who are not necessarily cruel, but you know, they really view me as a bit of a failure. I didn't become uh, a publishing scientific professor, a research professor, which is what I was really trained to be. And um, especially in these days of social media, a television show will come out and all of a sudden I get messages from strangers who say that they love me and strangers that say that they hate me. And um, 
I often get questions from, from young students and they, they say, well, how did you become a success? Or another you know, great question these days is how did you overcome failure? And the funny thing is I found myself really kind of at a loss because the very concepts of success and failure, I think are, are, are words that never really meant anything. And I, I actually, I strongly suspect they have a lot to do with privilege. That if you can make yourself in the model of a research professor of 100 years ago, that's defined as a success. And if you do something different, it's defined as a failure. There's never been any time in my life where, you know, even after having received an award or having you know, been on a television show, I sat back and said, boy, I really feel like a success. It was always wrapped up in feelings of, um, I should have done something differently. I, I should have you know, had a different career path. I, I, there's, there's never been a time where I felt like a success. And at the same time, the idea that you ever really fail at something. There are plenty of times that I, you know, I very nearly failed differential equations and calculus. You know, there, there were things that I, I was not very good at, but I, I eventually got them on, say, the, the third or fourth try. And the problem was just you know, staying around and telling yourself that I really want to learn this. and I'm just not going to leave until I do. There wasn't any really true failure either. It was always kind of twisted up with things I was proud of that I was actually working through and trying to learn. So this idea that at some point in your life, you're going to stop and feel like a success. Yes, I am successful now. Um, I get very, very nervous when people ask me about that, about how, how did you become a success. I want to sit them down and tell them all the things I screwed up and all the things I did wrong and all the reasons I'm not a success. And at the same time, when, everybody, when anybody calls me a failure, it's like I want to sit you down and explain why what I'm doing is actually getting your money and your funding for the rest of science. You know, I'm not a failure either. Everything in life is going to be a flow between those two things. Everything is going to be a jumble of success and failure. Your personal life, your professional life, the way you feel about yourself. And it's a strange model we give young people. Try to be a success. Try to overcome failure. I, all I can do is just kind of breathe and just realize that at, at no point in my life am I going to separate those two. I love that. I, I like love her. Wow. What's her name? Michelle uh, Thaler? Michelle Thaler, yeah. Just but, the generosity of saying that in that way. But she, I'm, I'm sure she approaches everything uh, in this you, open, yeah. generous way like that, too. Yeah, I I agree with everything she said. I, I got nothing. I mean, she <laughs> because she really speaks to that idea. I mean, of viewing yourself, sort of like taking your own pulse is something... First, it's just not something you would naturally do. It's like you don't walk around saying, I'm a woman now, you know, which is why sometimes right. actually in fiction, back in the fiction of John Updike, um, when he was accused of, and I think aptly, of not getting women right, um, it was there was like a focus on a, a woman focusing on her own body. A woman, there was a scene, a woman sitting on a toilet, and I can't remember what it was exactly, but it felt like the way a man might imagine a woman mm. feeling female in a moment than the way a woman did. Being inside the body, being inside success or failure, not objectifying oneself in a way that the world is always trying to do to you. And frankly, in the course of a given day, you are many things. So if I get a bad review, well, oh, I'm a failure. I failed. Right. And then later in the afternoon, I got a good review. Oh, wait, uh, cancel that out. Or 
or somebody like my pie. I don't know. I mean, where where is it? Who's saying that? Who is the God looking down and making pronouncements? And it's an awful way to live. It's an awful way to think about the self. It's so difficult to escape in some ways because, you know, from the time you're young, you're asked, what is it you want to be? What is it you want to do, right? And so you, you spend your life asking yourself these questions. And then at some point you have to kind of come to terms with how things actually are. Yeah, I mean, I think every novel begins with like a, a grandiose fantasy and you can, you know, you can knock out a draft and then you you edit it and you look at, it's not the book that you wanted it to be, but it's the book that it is. Right. And there's a sadness sometimes attached with that. Oh, I didn't achieve the thing that I wanted, but here's the thing that it actually is. So maybe not categorizing, but just it's it's more of a, forgive me, but it's a kind of like mindfulness way of living seems like the, the antidote. I, I always come back to this, though. I'm sort of obsessed with this right now in the in the issue of ambition, like how you reconcile where you're at with where you where you want to go and how that doesn't become a source of tension. When I was young, you know, and. Amb- my friends and I were so ambitious. It was the twin rocket ship idea in a way without the, and now I see it differently later in my life. I just, you know, it it becomes, it's not that the things I want are more modest. I mean, I have more expenses, so many more expenses. I have kids and, you know, uh, I, but this notion that we're on this path and all kinds yeah i don't think that way although we must say that you have also achieved like some significant milestones yes i've certainly achieved trying to be i'm certainly i'm getting to be a writer to be a novelist today i am very grateful for that i feel great gratefulness about that but you think about something like the famous thought experiment um that joshua bell took part Mm in Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. you know in the washington dc metro uh, at the Let's entrance where he, yeah, he, um, the, the great world, world class, one of the best violinists in the world, Joshua Bell, uh, stood at the entrance of a metro station and played. And it was at rush hour. In, and of course, people who would have paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars <laughs> to see him rush past. Got to go to that meeting. Oh, Got to meet the Chemco board. Yeah, you yeah know, he had like I, a like baseball cap it, on right. and they didn't yeah. know who he was. And yeah. one or two people stopped laughed, realized what was going on. But for the most part, you know, success could only be seen as success if it had the correct trappings, if it had the velvet curtains. And without it, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't see, well, we couldn't see talent without success. Let me just put it that way. Uh Uh, We couldn't see talent unless it was there with its sibling success. Yeah, validated and presented to right. us as such, you know, right. by somebody else, some so authority. When th- like. So when you think of the micro validations that most people probably need all the time to feel successful, and how debilitating it must be for all of us to take our own pulses. And it's something that, right, as she says, it's instilled in us when we're young in school, what are you going to be? You know, this question, like, what do you do? What do you, where do you want to be? I wrote a novel called The Ten-Year Nap that played against some of these things in a, in a conscious way because it was about women who had had children and took off time from work mm, right. and then suddenly 10 years had passed. And it was about the idea of people looking through them because they didn't have something that marked them as a success. They were of no interest. And they had to rethink 
what is purpose? Like, what is my purpose? Do I want to go back to a corporation that never loved me? My child loves me more than that corporation did. Why do I want to do that? So no one in the book worked. So no one in the book had status in the very status-conscious New York City world in which they lived. They had mother status among other mothers, but beyond that, some people thought that they didn't have it. Um, And it was interesting to see, to sort of remove people from that, and it was kind of, it, it sort of shakes the scene a little bit. When we can't immediately say, oh, that one's successful, that one's not, I know how to describe that person, people get uncomfortable, which is terrible. And I'd go so far as to say, it seems to me that everything beautiful and good that happens, including like a novel that is well-written, happens in a consciousness that isn't doing that. Right, I mean, the play of creating art is so removed, is just not only in another room, it's in another building from the thoughts that are like that. Meg Wolitzer, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for for being on the show. Oh, happy to be here. Meg's new book is called The Female Persuasion. It's a wonderful novel, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it to the point where I ran out and went and started reading another of her novels and highly, highly recommend it. Thanks again, Meg. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I've said this before, but I absolutely love receiving emails from people who are listening, letting me know where you're listening from, what the show might mean to you, or responding to ideas that we're talking about. I got an email last week from a fan in Azerbaijan, and he writes... Listening to innovators from various fields, communicating their thoughts and representing their respective areas of study has opened my mind to ideas I had never even conceived of. Had I not listened to this show, I would never have known the role that architecture could play in our day-to-day lives or discovered the inner workings of the beautiful art of lexicography. I'm learning a great deal myself, but it means everything to hear back from you, the listener. Feel free to write me at jason at bigthink.com or to join our Facebook group, which is called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And we'll be back next week with something completely different.